0: Lucas on Life. Hello, welcome to Lucas on Life. It's Sunday at eight. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Forgiving. It's been said that everyone believes in forgiving until we actually have something to forgive. The news of the murders of Bieber Henry and Nicole Smallman hit the headlines on Monday the 8th of June 2020. The two sisters had been repeatedly stabbed, their bodies left lying behind a line of trees in a park in Wembley in northwest London. Their mother asked if she could ever forgive Hussein, their murderer. Their mother, Mina Smallman, a former archdeacon, said, I already have. I've surprised myself, actually. She went on to say, when we hold hatred for someone... It's not only them who are held captive. It's you because your thoughts become consumed by revenge. She added, I refuse to give him that power. He is a non-entity to me. The saddest thing is that we're talking about a 19-year-old boy who had his whole life in front of him, who is clearly deluded. I watched and listened to Mina as she shared an interview with the BBC Breakfast News and was stunned by her beautiful capacity to forgive. Forgiving, that's what we're talking about here on Lucas on Life. Talking about Mina Smallman, it would almost seem like it's such a gargantuan feat to actually forgive the person who killed your daughters. How did she do that, and what does it mean? Let's realize right away that forgiveness is not at all about diminishing what that person did or somehow thinking that it really doesn't count for much. Obviously, when someone takes your children, it counts for everything. It is so devastating. No, it's not about pretending that the person didn't do something wrong or that you're not impacted by it. Rather, it's making a cold emotional choice to not be held captive by continuous feelings of anger and resentment. It's been said that the first person to benefit from forgiving is the forgiver. I learned some of that when I went to the optician, which was more fun than going to the dentist, but only just. With the optician, I don't have to look into the wildly staring eyes of a masked man whose mission in life is to shove 40 pounds of stainless steel equipment into my mouth. But there are still bits of the annual eye test that I don't really enjoy. For one thing, these days they shoot you in the eyes, twice. Admittedly, it's only a puff of air fired at high speed, but I do still have to place my chin on what looks like an instrument of high-tech torture for the shooting. No one likes this part, smiles the optician, as if this is supposed to make me feel better. It's painless enough but it always makes me jump. Asking for a piece of wood to chew on during the test seems rather pathetic but I do like the part that follows the shooting. That's choosing some new glasses. If I had the cash I could be to specs what Imelda Marcos was to shoes. So it was with mixed feelings that I went to the opticians recently There was no sign on the door that warned me that my day and, in a way, my life was about to change. Junction moments don't come with advance notice. Within moments, I was chatting with Gary, the store manager. He sported a broad, genuine smile and made conversation that went beyond slick sales patter. Inwardly, I made a note to myself. This man is likeable. Talking with him was a pleasure. Our nattering away about optic fields of vision and designer frames gradually dried up. I asked him how he got into the eyesight business. He paused for a moment, seemingly weighing up whether or not to get into the story. Married with two adult sons, Gary had been a high school teacher and a sports coach. His eldest son, also his best friend, was a keen cyclist. An oncoming driver had fallen asleep at the wheel and ploughed into his son, killing him instantly. Gary abandoned his teaching career and relocated to Colorado with his wife to be with his younger son. He'd taken a job in an optician's clinic. This was impressive parenting, but there was much more impressive detail to come. Gary went on to tell me how he'd gone to the trial of that slumbering driver, a young man of about the same age as his dead son. He'd pleaded for leniency with the judge. Everyone makes mistakes, Gary said. No drugs or alcohol were involved. Ruining that young driver's life wouldn't bring his son back. The judge was stunned and he'd been lenient. But then Gary told me how he and his wife had befriended the driver. Not only had they forgiven him, but the two families had become close. And now he talked with obvious pride about the man who killed his beloved boy, He's going into the Air Force and training to be a pilot, he beamed, genuinely delighted. I struggled unsuccessfully to keep tears back. I wanted to know his secret. How does someone forgive so magnificently? It's my faith, he smiled. Gary is a Christian. Without any threat or clumsiness, he asked me if I was a follower of Jesus too. Grace shone through, not just in the details of Gary's story, but also In the way he shared his story, there was no overplay, no sensationalism, just a matter-of-fact miracle. And he didn't attempt to gloss over the pain. I still cry every day, he smiled, blinking rapidly, perhaps preventing more weeping. Heroes make hard choices. They cry, but refuse to allow their tears to blind them. They refuse to stop loving. They don't give up on giving and won't let their lives be preoccupied with their own pain. And in giving grace, they find an endless supply of it. The oil doesn't run dry. Thanks, Gary. I met you because I needed a shot in the eye and some new lenses. But since bumping into you, I've learned so much about forgiveness and I see things and life much more clearly. Forgiveness is our theme. And that involves apologising, saying sorry. But sometimes saying sorry can mean nothing. Boys will be boys, as they say, and I recall one occasion where my grandsons were busily illustrating that truth. Alex had a toy that he didn't want to share, and Stanley felt that this was a violation of the Christian ethic of selflessness. So he gave his younger brother a slap. Alex didn't feel able at this stage of his spiritual maturity to turn the other cheek, so he gave his brother a slap in response. Much yelling ensued until our son-in-law Ben intervened, diffused the escalating conflict, and then made the demand that parents always make when siblings get into a fuss. Now guys, he said, say sorry to each other. Silence. Reluctance much shrugging of Junior's shoulders. Both waited, hesitating because going first with the apology would be tantamount to admitting greater guilt, and that wasn't going to happen. Finally, the deadlock was broken. Stanley, his face wooden, eyes down on the carpet, mumbled, sorry. Alex responded with a reciprocal mumble, sorry. Neither one looked at the other as they said it. And although they did as they were told, this much was obvious. If there was such a thing as an instrument to measure heartfelt sincerity, they would have both registered very low on the scale. What was real was their desire to end the telling-off session, and the mouthing of sorry did just that. And it's not just children who do this. Some of us adults have honed this to a fine art saying sorry can be a way to end the awkwardness of potential offence. But A. A. Gill laments, the British sorry is a prophylactic word. It protects the user and the recipient from the potentially explosive consequences of the truth. Ouch. Elton John famously sang that sorry seems to be the hardest word, and for some it really is. I recently watched a documentary where a daughter confronted her father about the years of horrendous physical abuse that he inflicted upon her mother. The abusive father looked shamed and he shifted around uncomfortably in his seat and admitted that he felt bad. But then he said, that was then, but this is now. Let's move on. What he didn't say was sorry. She waited and waited, allowing the awful silence to hang between them, desperate for him to apologize, to perhaps discuss forgiveness. As far as I know, she's still waiting for that sorry. One of the catchphrases that emerged from the classic movie Love Story back in 1970 was the misguided notion that love means never having to say you're sorry, which has to be one of the most ridiculous statements ever made. But I'm wondering if for some, Sorry isn't hard to say, and it's not because love means that we don't have to say it. Rather, we can squander sorry. Like a country that hits an economic crash and discovers that its currency is now next to worthless, surely we can devalue the currency of apology if we use it thoughtlessly and cheaply. Apparently, the English are especially guilty of apology misuse. Our readiness to apologize for things we haven't done is almost comical and yet tempered by our unwillingness to apologize for things we have done. And sometimes sorry is not about warding off conflict, but it's just a vanilla expression of politeness, something to make our lives easier. Being seen to be humble and being quick to apologize can be an expression of that. It's also a great way to look good, In wanting to appear servant-like, we consider that girding our loins with a towel is a tad bit extreme, and so an easier strategy is to live on the edge of apology. In a 2010 study, young Canadians were asked about their saying sorry moments. Many people aged 18 to 25 were more interested in impressing others and in advancing through making personal connections in their career and everyday life, and therefore are more open to saying sorry to keep the relationships positive. Even more alarmingly, some even use sorry as a device for repeating their bruising behaviour. The British government had to run a campaign to highlight the evils of domestic abuse and discuss the disturbingly high number of people who resort to violence in their closest relationships, and the numbers have gone sky high during the recent pandemic. No doubt the abuser often says sorry after the punching, but then the pattern continues. Sorry has changed nothing. I've met people who seem to spend their lives hurting others and then rushing to emotional apologetic speeches. They consistently bruise with their thoughtless words, hurt with their blundering decisions, but are quick to utter the word sorry. But an apology is not a sticking plaster that we can hastily slap on to heal a deep wound, especially when a destructive pattern of behaviour continues. And sometimes the word sorry can actually be harmful in church circles. I once endured a very awkward prayer gathering where the topic for the evening had been forgiveness, and the preacher suggested that we end the evening by approaching anyone who had offended us And telling them that we had released them from our anger and that we were sorry for our lingering bitterness. The saddest sight was a line of people that had formed around one fairly well known Christian leader who had obviously managed to upset quite a few people in his time. I thought that perhaps we should have installed one of those take a number contraptions that are found in supermarkets. Yes, I'm very glad you got that off your chest, but there are rather a lot of people waiting to ongoingly confront me. So, number 47, please. The practice of informing people that we've been upset with them, sometimes over a period of many years, is dubious at best. These so-called confessions can be a sneaky way of hurting people while feeling pious at the same time. I've had a few people tell me how liberated they felt after getting their hatred for me off their chest, and I've been left feeling devastated as a result. Not everything has to be sorted out or talked through. Sometimes we need to just keep our irritation and even our sense of offense to ourselves, deal with it in our relationship with God and move on. A big revelatory confession is not always needed. Not everything requires a big sorting out. Sorry is often just the first step on a meaningful journey of reconciliation and ultimately forgiveness. That's why the Bible celebrates godly sorrow. There's a sorrow that we can feel just because we've been caught out or we're embarrassed about our failure or grieved because of the consequences of our actions. But true sorrow is but a stepping stone to real change. It might involve weeping, but when the tears are dried, there's a change of behavior. Saul in the Old Testament wept bitterly over his murderous treatment of David But all too soon, his abusive behavior returned. You can read about it in 1 Samuel 26. Perhaps you're in a relationship where a punch is usually followed up with a tearful apology. You may even have been told that it's your Christian duty to forgive. Therefore, you have to put up with this abusive lifestyle. But that's just another form of emotional blackmail and manipulation. Sorry can be a hollow word and a control word too. So let's view the word sorry as a valuable, genuine concession that shouldn't be tossed around and cheapened. Let's not flash it in an attempt to validate our credentials in humility. And whatever we do, let's not use sorry in a way that creates more sorrow. Forgiveness, that's what we've been talking about this evening, a complex subject. Perhaps you have been personally... Sorry. Perhaps you are personally being impacted by some of the issues that we've discussed and there are people waiting to visit with you and to pray with you here on the Premier Lifeline. Call 0300 111 0101. That's 0300 111 0101. Thanks for joining me. See you next week. Lucas on Life.